The following podcast is sponsored content from Netflix. True crime has captivated audiences for over a century. First consumed as short stories and novels, the genre evolved amidst new forms of media and technology. Today, because of social media, true crime is more interactive than ever before. People can go online to discuss theories, to scrutinize evidence, to call for justice. Where consumer skepticism of the judicial system and real-life consequences meet, the stakes can be high. Because true crime is true. It's not fiction. This previously untapped connection to audiences is exemplified in productions like HBO's The Jinx and the podcast Serial. These stories' relationships to and interaction with audiences is revolutionizing the genre. And now, Netflix is breaking new ground with the release of their original documentary series, Making a Murderer. I'm Lenica Cruz associate editor covering culture at The Atlantic, and I'm taking you behind the scenes of the making of Making a Murderer. It took directors Laura Ricciardi and Moira Dimas 10 years to tell Stephen Avery's complicated story in this 10-part series. Now, they're joining me to explore how they navigated the complex world of evolving DNA technology, changing legislation, and the muddy politics of Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. We'll dissect the power that the media has on shaping and influencing narratives, and dive into the gripping drama of truth and skepticism built by access to true crime. All 10 episodes of Making a Murderer are now available on Netflix. Laura, Moira, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you, Lenica. So for those who haven't yet seen the show, can you just briefly explain what the premise is? Sure. Making a Murderer tells the story of Stephen Avery, who is a DNA exoneree who, two years after his release from prison, becomes a prime suspect in a new crime. And, you know, we couldn't understand what would make somebody who had spent nearly two decades fighting to get out of prison do something that would put them back in prison. So that question caused us to leave New York and move to Wisconsin and start chronicling this case. And the series really looks back at the previous case and then uses that as the lens through which to look at the current case. Where were each of you individually in your lives and careers when you came across Stephen Avery's story? Moira and I were both graduate film students at Columbia University back in November of 2005 when we first read about Stephen Avery. It was the day before Thanksgiving, and we were planning to spend the holiday together, and we hopped a train in Manhattan for the Berkshires of Massachusetts, and Stephen appeared on the front page of the New York Times— And I remember sitting next to Laura on the train, and about every two minutes she was elbowing me, telling me some other fact that was revealed in this article. What do you think separates Making a Murderer from other entries in the true crime genre? Well, I think one of the things that sets Making a Murderer apart from other true crime stories is right at the center of it is actually, you know, a civil rights lawsuit. Stephen's status as an accused is is quite unique. He was in the process of trying to hold law enforcement and the powers in his community accountable for their alleged wrongdoing. And so it was very, it's very much a story about tables turning. And I would, I would add just the idea that, you know, this particular agency, individuals from that county would have a vested interest in whether or not Stephen would be convicted a second time was fascinating to us. So can you tell me a little bit about your influences? I mean, I think I'm remembering correctly that in our motel room the night before our first day of shooting, we were playing scenes from Paradise Lost. 
the the whole Paradise Lost trilogy was an inspiration to us, both the filmmaking for sure, and the fact that it, it demonstrated that there was an appetite. You know, I think the first film was nearly three hours, and then there was two more. Right before we started making this, the Sundance Channel aired their eight-part series, The Staircase, which again demonstrated this appetite and showed that you could follow one case in detail and, you know, that characters could be the center of it as well as the evidence. You know, it's not all about the evidence. It's about the world and the characters and the dynamic relationships between the different parties. I really think it's important to acknowledge, you know, the films that have come before and they they were our rock and our anchor so often, you know, it would be like Mary and I would be having a discussion and it would be like, well, you know, how did this particular filmmaker handle that? And it it just helped a lot because especially working on mm-hmm. something like this practically in isolation for so long and also trying to tell an epic story that's such a complex narrative, it would help sometimes just to look for other examples you know, even if they weren't the perfect analog for what we were doing. Have you listened to the first season of Serial, and have you seen the jinx? First about Serial, I mean, I was joking with someone the other day that over Christmas vacation, while everybody's going to get a chance to binge watch Making a Murderer, I'll finally get a chance to sit in the corner and listen to Serial and catch up. (laughs) It's been such a crazy push this last 16 months or so that we're we're way behind on some of this stuff. I was I was able to listen to the first 3 episodes and I'm really hooked and it's very hard not to have a chunk of hours that I can dig in. I might not be working as hard as Moira. I've listened to probably 2 thirds of the podcast. It's almost surreal to listen to Serial in a sense because I, I think it was just the other night that I was listening to her speak to Adnan and him question her about her motivations. While I can't say that I can recall that exact type of conversation with Stephen, it's crossed my mind a bunch. What does he make of what we've been doing all of these years, and why must he think we're doing this? In his case, it's probably been much harder because we've been on the you know on this journey a lot longer. What was the process of corroborating the testimony that you received like, and how did you decide who to trust? Well, one of our rules of thumb in approaching subjects or trying to tell this story is, you know, we always wanted to go straight to the source. So we never wanted people to speak about a part of the story that they weren't involved in. So everyone is always speaking from their own experience. That's that's the limit of the authority from which they speak and then you add them all together and you get a complex story. And, you know, we really want to leave it up to the viewers who to believe and who to trust. Right. So speaking of trust, how did you as filmmakers gain the trust of the people you were interviewing? I'm thinking specifically of like Stephen's family and people who might not necessarily come out of this looking good or not totally knowing how they would come out of this looking. Well, I guess I would say, you know, one thing that I mentioned before is that you know, we, we were living out there and we were staying around. Many subjects we talked to several times. So if they had more to say or if there were new developments, we would go back to them. I think with the Averys, Stephen's family, you know, one of the major elements was that unlike the nightly news or the, the local reporters who, if they talked to them, they would see something end up on the news that night and maybe instantly see that they were misquoted or it was a, a twisting of what they had tried to say they saw that we weren't going for a quick bite. They began to trust that we were we were willing to tell their part of the story as part of the story. 
and not using it for something else. I want to listen to a clip from Stephen's father, Alan Avery, reflecting on Stephen's assault conviction in the first episode. The whole thing was a nightmare. How do you think a man feels? You see your son sitting right there. And he's, and he's saying, he's, the tears are coming out of his eyes. Didn't do it, he said. I'm innocent, I didn't do it. And you know he didn't do it, you were with him, you know. It's hard to take. When I was watching um, the different interviews with Stephen's relatives, I got the feeling that they were talking as if other people hadn't been listening to sort of their story and they'd been met with so much skepticism. And there was just this feeling of like they were confiding and they were actually allowed to sort of give their own perspective on things that made it feel very candid and intimate. Yeah, I mean, that was often the feeling we had when speaking with people I mean, often, you know, there are several interviews that are in the series that are, you know, it's the, it's the day that we met somebody, that we sat down with them and shot with them, and we are constantly amazed by how open people were and how willing they were to share their story. And I think it really was about, you know, that we were taking the time to listen. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody wanted to give us an hour, some interviews went eight hours. So we were really there to record and to listen. Was there any moment while you two were working on this story that was so powerful that it almost caused you to walk away or question sort of your your role in the story? I can't think of a time that anything brought us close to walking away. Many events happened that did exactly the opposite, that inspired us more to keep going. Because there were long stretches of time with no support and no outlet in sight uh, and, you know, continuing to believe that this was a story worth telling. It was the moments of, um, you know, either something that's so unbelievable that nobody would believe me if I told them it had happened, that I had to show them that it had happened, or elements that were getting misrepresented or rewritten that needed to be fleshed out more in terms of just preserving history. How do you draw the line between reporting and sort of faithfully telling people stories and then feeling like you're maybe exploiting parts of their lives, some of their more private moments? How did you sort of balance that? Well, I would say it was interesting, you know, just documenting this type of story. We treated it in a very delicate way, and maybe part of that is because of my own legal background. But we understood boundaries that were erected by Stephen's lawyers. While on the one hand, they were open to having us film with them, there were very clear boundaries and things that we could not do just because of the confidential and sensitive nature of the case. With the family, because we had spent essentially two years with them, and much of that was sitting with them and listening to them and doing so in a way that was not about judging them or putting them on the defensive in any way, but just allowing them to hear themselves talk, really, just to give them a voice. I think they really appreciated that, and as a result, trusted us during some of their darker moments and some of the more challenging moments. So it really was about establishing boundaries, respecting boundaries, and how we conducted ourselves when we were actually filming with our subjects. 
Can you talk to us a little bit about sort of the evolution of DNA technology and how that played a role in Stephen's case? Well, certainly, I mean, the advances of DNA played a huge role in the fact that it it was DNA testing that in 2003 was able to um, conclusively exonerate him. I mean, one of the things we definitely look at in this series and came to understand better, having spent this time covering this case and speaking to lawyers involved in the case, is that DNA presents itself as its science. It's it's black and white. It's like a truth meter. It's like I just run this test and it tells me the answer. And it's, it clearly comes from this sort of desire to take the the human muddiness out of the system and to make something much more concrete that we can rely upon. But I think we have to look beyond that as the solution to these problems that the vast majority of serious criminal cases don't involve DNA evidence of any kind, so that's never going to really solve the problem. And it's always a, a post-process solution. You know, our system is founded on an innocent until proven guilty, not guilty then pro- proven innocent. So we need another, another way of recognizing when things are going astray. DNA is definitely touted a lot as Here's proof, but it matters who collected the evidence, who tested the evidence, who's testifying about the evidence, and what it really, what does it really tell you? So in its earlier days, it was pretty common for people to play up the skepticism surrounding the new science. Is that right? I think people are always skeptical of something new. So I think there was skepticism, but then I think um, I think people are getting more comfortable with DNA and perhaps taking that a little too far and thinking, well, now, you know, that'll just solve all the problems. Well, also, if you hear mention that there's DNA evidence in a particular case that I don't believe that ever should end the inquiry, I think that's really where it should start. Because I think one of the phrases we heard in Stephen's trial actually was this phrase, garbage in, garbage out, and learn more about so-called junk science. And Really what that's about is, you know, the evidence is really only as good as the human beings who are collecting it and testing it and reporting on it. So, again, you know, just the presence of a particular type of biological material shouldn't be enough to end the inquiry of whether or not someone committed a particular act. How did the actual technology of the cameras and sort of the more technical aspects of making this series change? I guess in the very last stage, we, we did manage to have the funding to, to shoot with some better cameras and to go up in helicopters and shoot aerials. And, you know, our our series is such a mix of materials. I mean, we have deposition footage that, you know, was shot on, I don't even, I think, high eight cameras. We have other police search video that, again, I'm not sure what the original format was. We have DVD recordings of interrogation video. We have media footage. And... And so our intention was always for all of this to to be able to weave together into a sort of seamless mix. So our technology has definitely advanced, but then some things are, are very rudimentary. I mean, we, we have, I think, a 1998 PC laptop that's, you know, the only computer we could find that would play the jail phone recordings, the CDs. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's it's high tech and low tech, and that's how you sort of glue it all together. Did you just feel like the media at the time wasn't going to tell the full story properly and that you two were especially sort of equipped to go in and get into the weeds and and see what was really going on? I mean, I wouldn't say that was at all our starting point. I think we went in just 
personally wanting to know more and thinking there was a story here that maybe wasn't going to be told nationally that might just be a local story. But um, in the end, we ended up feeling like we had this arsenal and we had all these materials that really didn't exist anywhere else and that if we did not follow through, that that history would be lost. So that was... That was definitely something that kept us going. It was not our starting point, but it was definitely fuel through the years. You interviewed Mike Kinzel, who was a reporter for WCUB Radio Manitowoc at the time of Stephen's first conviction. Let's listen to a clip from that interview. Whatever I learned about the case, any of the uh, notions that I had personally came from the police and the courts. Each morning, you see if there's anything going in the sheriff's department. I knew Tom Kasurik well. I knew District Attorney Dennis Vogel quite well because we visited with him on cases all the time. He was kind of a part of our news beat, uh, so Stephen Avery was on that beat. We get acquainted with all of the regular names, and, and he was one of them. When his name came up as the guy that they were holding, it was, oh, that would be within, you know, that's in character. So what do you think that the role of sort of local media and national media was in creating this image of Stephen Avery? It's interesting. One of our subjects said to us at one point that he felt the media was essentially channeling the prosecution's narrative. And it was clear all the way up until trial that the state's narrative was the narrative. It was the dominant narrative. Part of that was because Stephen's attorneys, his defense lawyers, refused to defend him in the media. They wanted the process to play out in the courtroom. And so, in fairness, I think, to the local media, if their news director was directing them or asking them to go out and bring back stories about the Avery case, you know, for a full year, and one side was holding daily press conferences or that side was the side that was, you know, putting forth the narrative in a criminal complaint, then, of course, that was the story that was going to be broadcast. How big of a role do you think the public and public scrutiny plays in getting cases like Stevens reexamined? I would say a, a huge role. I think the courts have no incentive to reexamine cases if the public has made up their mind about the answer of a case. Right, which is where the problem of the media sort of perpetuating the, the prosecution story is is a problem. Well, I think it's, you know, just a combination of factors that contribute to all of this. I mean, interestingly, going in, I really thought of the media as an external force in this. And the more time we spent documenting the new case as it was unfolding and working not only working side by side with the media, but also filming many of them. Many of them became subjects in the series itself. The more I began to realize that the media actually were an internal force in this whole process, that they actually did play a role in how things were panning out. Everything from, you know, whether it would be possible to, you know, get a fair trial in the county in which Stephen lived. You know, would it be possible to find anyone in that county who hadn't heard of Stephen Avery by the time he got to trial? Laura, you earned a JD from New York Law School before going to film school. How did that play into your work on Making a Murderer? I think my legal education both piqued my interest in the story when, you know, when Stephen appeared on the front page of the New York Times, I I immediately recognized the headline as an unprecedented story. And 
was very interested in how best to tell it. I think that over the course of us being in production and working with our subjects, it was very helpful to have had a legal education. You know, what I learned as a result of my legal education was how to analyze the type of material and the information that was available to us and to share a common language with many of our subjects because a number of our subjects are, in fact, attorneys. I mean, Stephen had a whole parade of lawyers who represented him from 1985 through well into the new millennium. So that was all very helpful. Moira and I, actually, I think we're sort of the ideal team to make this series because while I had the legal education, you know, we met in film school and we were at the time in this graduate program that was very much focused on storytelling. And Moira had a background as a film editor, as a lighting technician, as a DP. She could have been a one-man band, you know, and just made this herself. But we had this complementary background. And, you know, as a result, I think we're able to, in many ways, pull this off as this duo, while at the same time bringing on other people through the years whom we supervised and trained and, you know, helped us get as far as we've gotten. So how does the process of getting compensation to the wrongfully convicted work? Well, in Stephen's case, after he was exonerated, my understanding is the Wisconsin State Legislature made a recommendation to what's referred to as a state claims board and, you know, was seeking compensation for Stephen. I believe the Wisconsin Innocence Project, which was instrumental in getting Stephen's conviction overturned, filed some type of memo or or brief to to argue for maybe a six-figure amount. And in the end, Stephen was awarded $25,000 for 18 years in prison. In general, though, I, I do think that wrongful conviction compensation, it varies state to state, and different states have different policies, and they think they vary quite widely. And I, honestly, I think states are probably being more proactive in terms of essentially nipping this issue in the bud. I think that they would like to avoid the type of litigation that Stephen brought. The type of action Stephen brought was an alleged violation of Stephen's federal civil rights. So the matter was taken out of the state court system. And I think the state states would prefer to handle the matters at the state level. If the amount has been determined up front, it's almost like making a settlement payment as opposed to risking going to federal court and losing a much larger sum. I actually think in some states, if you if you take the the compensation money, you sign away your right to sue. So it is quite literally protection against lawsuits. Yeah, I was thinking one of the things that was so fascinating about this was, I mean, either outcome, either the fact that a DNA exoneree went and committed this committed this crime, or the county is trying to make him look guilty for this crime. Either of those outcomes are both incredibly compelling and almost unbelievable. <laughs> so that I feel like was what sort of drew me into this. Either explanation is sort of outrageous, no matter what way you look at it. Yeah, I think that's very true. We often think that you couldn't write this stuff if you tried, and whatever happened, any scenario is is unprecedented and unbelievable. And maybe maybe the real truth is even more unbelievable than either of those. Who knows? 
So did you realize at the time that it was going to spiral into a decade-long process? Not at all, no. <laughs> I mean, that first, the first trip to Wisconsin, I think his preliminary examination was on December 6th, though it was the day before Thanksgiving we read the article. We made a few calls to find out if cameras were allowed in the courtroom, how that would work. It turned out there would be a media pool. It seemed like a doable thing, that we could rent a car, we could borrow a camera, and we could drive the 16 hours to kind of test the waters, see what was going on. So we we went out for a week that December, and really we're just trying to get to a sense of the players, who was who, started writing letters, realized there really was more to the story, and started making plans for how we could make this happen. I mean, at the time, of course, you know, this is 2005. We're imagining we're setting out to make a feature. There weren't many models of other formats out there. But the more we dug into the story, the more we researched the past, and then there were a few key major turning points in the case that made it clear that this was never going to be a feature. So that became something that we really really had to struggle with, and one of our main challenges was to to find a way to do the format that we knew the story needed when the marketplace didn't really have that format readily available to us yet. Who do you think Making a Murderer is for? Who is your intended audience? Well, I think the obvious, there, you know, there's an obvious answer to that, which is people who are interested in true crime stories. I think that they'll tend to gravitate towards this, especially because of the types of reviews that are coming out. And, and we're hoping that the viewership will extend beyond people who have an interest in the true crime genre and to people who, you know, are just more generally interested in dramatic documentaries or or I should say narrative documentaries or even, you know, a, a nonfiction story that plays very much like a thriller. And, you know, one of the reasons we're especially excited about this series airing on Netflix is viewership has always been a priority for us. We've wanted as many people as possible to see this series. And I believe with the Netflix platform and the type of control that viewers have, the the fact that the series is now released in its entirety, that gives viewers quite a bit of control. They can choose when to watch. And, you know, 10 hours, we're, we're asking a, a big commitment of our viewers to tune in for 10 hours. So with the benefit of them having control, it's more likely that people will you know, stay tuned, which is great. Do you think that the the Netflix format is a good fit for this specific type of deeply involved, dense, true story? We think it's the perfect format, partly because, you know, the creatives at Netflix, they were just incredibly generous to us and they acted much like curators. They chose this project and respected our process and did whatever they could to support us and help us tell the story that we wanted and needed to tell. So now knowing what you know, that it took 10 years to tell the story and looking back and remembering how there were moments when you weren't sure if you were going to have enough money to tell the full story and all the difficulties, do you think you would do it all again? Yes. Maybe not right now. I might go back in time and do it all again, but <laughs> I feel like working on this project has enriched my life in so many ways. I I feel like I've grown and 
I mean, there were things that I knew about my character and the types of things I would gravitate towards and, you know, what would interest me in this type of story and how I would think I would want to tell it. But being in it and working on it and encountering the people we met, I mean, I I just, I couldn't anticipate how much this experience would give. And I think it's important to recognize that and acknowledge it because that's essentially why we were doing it. I mean, it was at the same time giving to us and at the same time affording us the privilege of being in a position to tell what we think is a very important story and to try to do it in the best way that we could. How do you see the the internet and social media playing a role in the popularity of the series? Do you think it's going to bring a lot of new attention to Stephen Avery's story and maybe change sort of his his future? I mean, I have no way of knowing, you know, what the results will be. I mean, our incentive was always to try to tell the fullest story and to try to promote a dialogue about this. Our experience was that there was, as Laura mentioned, a dominant narrative that went more or less unchallenged. Much of the story was left out, and we think that only good can come from dialogue. So, you know, our hope is is just that this promotes a dialogue, and who knows what will come of that, but that was always our goal. Laura, Moira, thank you so much for joining me today. The pleasure was ours. Thank you. Thank you, Lenica. Laura Ricciardi and Moira Dimas are the directors of the new true crime documentary series, Making a Murderer. Be sure to check out all 10 episodes, which are available right now on Netflix.